I mean, what's the explanation for that? It really is a supernatural explanation, as we note as we work our way through the book. But a uh, key verse uh, in chapter 1 is verse 21, where Paul says, For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Uh, as you uh, think about uh, the book of uh, Philippians, he's writing a thank you letter to these people. They're very close to his heart because they have been partners with him in the gospel ministry since the very day they got saved, as he says in the, in the opening verses. As uh, we worked our way through chapter 1, we come to the close of the chapter, and we see there that he encourages a worthy conduct, a conduct that is worthy of the gospel. And there's really uh, two things that he's emphasizing here. Note verse 27, which he picks up, I think, on in chapter 2. But he says, Only let your conduct be worthy of the uh, gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together. You see there's about a threefold pile-up emphasis here, right? On unity for the faith of the gospel. Then you come down to verse 29. To you it has been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. So there's an emphasis on conduct that is worthy of the gospel related to unity and related to suffering for the cause of Christ. Those two ideas uh, come through there. Well, that transitions us to chapter 2, where we have in the opening verses of chapter 2, one of the most profound sections in the scriptures on humility. And, of course, it builds to that famous kenosis passage, uh, the idea of self-emptying, uh, Christ self-emptying in chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. And uh, so as we look at the opening verses here in chapter 2, it prepares us for the ultimate example of the humility that he's emphasizing here, as found in Jesus Christ, ultimately. Well, let's uh, pick it up here. And let's have somebody read uh, verse 1. Who wants to read verse 1? Chapter, yeah, Albert? Yep. Okay, thank you. Uh, the word, therefore, we believe ties back to verse 27 and the emphasis on unity there, uh, suggesting here that there's kind of an underlying current at Philippi, at the Church of Philippi, of some disunity. There's a little bit of an issue here, it would seem. He's making an emphasis here uh, for a reason. A little bit of an underlying problem, it would seem, there. And so that is why we have this tremendous emphasis on, on unity that is centered in humility, as we find in the first four verses here, and then following that up with the ultimate example of Jesus Christ as as the premier example of humility. Therefore, if, uh, if really could be translated since, uh, it's the idea of, and there is, in Christ there are these realities. Uh, therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ. Um, here he's talking about inward attitudes. Uh, we've noted a lot about outward circumstances related to prison and suffering. In chapter 1. But now he turns his attention to uh, inward attitudes. And as you think about, uh, you know, challenges that the church faces, 
the outward circumstances are not as great a concern as the inward issues, <laughs> uh, the inward attitudes. Uh, this is where the real struggle is found. And so we have a tremendous uh, emphasis here. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, the idea of uh, consolation here is encouragement or exhortation. Uh, I think I've got a slide on this. So note here, the root meaning of the word consolation is to come alongside, uh, to offer counsel, comfort, or exhortation. The idea in context seems to refer to the persuasive influence of the Holy Spirit that goes on in the hearts of Christians, which encourages Christian love and unity. I think that's what he's talking about here. Uh, he's talking about an inward reality that's found in Christ. Uh, this inward ministry of the Holy Spirit related to encouragement and exhortation. And it applies to those that are in Christ, those that have a, a relationship, a faith relationship with Jesus Christ. So this, again, relates to spiritual uh, realities. If there's any consolation in Christ, if there's any comfort of love, uh, this idea of consoling love. Um, indeed, uh, again, there is consoling love in Christ. Uh, any fellowship of the Spirit, uh, sharing in the, in the Spirit, in the Holy Spirit. Uh, fellowship is the idea of uh, partnership or that which we uh, share in together. Uh, is there any fellowship of the Spirit? And yes, there is. Um, we as the believers all are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Our, our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. The church also, the local church is spoken of as the temple. 1 Corinthians 3.16, the local church. Uh, 1 Corinthians 6.19, each individual believer. Both are spoken of as being the temple of God. And uh, we are all gifted by the Holy Spirit. We all have spiritual gifts. And uh, we uh, share in these things together. Uh, we all know as we walk in the Spirit, the fruit of the Holy Spirit, uh, which is love. So there is this fellowship of the Spirit. Uh, if any, affection and mercy. Really, you kind of have a blending of two nouns with a single emphasis here. Uh, affection and mercy. Uh, what did your say? What did your translation? Sympathy. Yeah, well, that's a good translation. Uh, what's that? Compassion. Compassion. Yeah, right. So uh, affection's an interesting word. Very literally, this word affection is bowels in the Greek, right? <laughs> and uh, yeah, is that right? The old King James does have bowels. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So, you know, and that's kind of understandable because uh, as you think about it, uh, it was the, the bowels or the, the gut was seen to be the place of the, the seat of the emotions. And, and you know, we sometimes kind of use that language, don't we? we? Talk about, I just had a gut feeling, you know, or those kind of things. So you can see where they kind of got that idea. It's a, a, a word that's related to kind of the emotions, the, the seat of the emotions, as it were. Uh, you know, we talk about emotions need to be the caboose and not the engine. That's true. But they are a real part of our experience. God did make us emotions and all. So uh, here's a word that kind of relates to that. And then uh, mercy. Mercy is this idea of compassion, uh, sympathy, showing pity, showing concern. And so when you put this all together, here's what you end up with. Putting it uh, together, this speaks of tender feelings of compassion. Let me paraphrase the gist of what I think Paul is saying. In light of the reality of, number one, God's exhorting, encouraging ministry in our experience. Number two, the reality of God's consoling love. Number three, the reality of mutual sharing in the Spirit. Number four, and the reality of tender feelings of compassion. 
In light of all these spiritual realities in which all Christians share, then apply it as applied in verse 2. And so really, verse 2 is kind of a further application now of the emphasis that he's making in chapter 1. Okay, um, any other thoughts here as we work our way through verse 1 here? Okay, we're talking about inner realities uh, that uh, are a result of our, our being in Christ. And uh, he's encouraging us to apply these things, to yield to the truth of them, uh, to let uh, uh, this have its way in our lives, which lends itself to Christian unity, as we see as we move on into verse 2. Okay, somebody want to read uh, verse 2? Yeah, Levita? Okay, so you see the unity there. Uh, These things being true, which are found in Christ, in verse 1, he says there, fulfill my joy being like-minded. Fulfill means uh, fill full. It's that idea. Fill full. Uh, Fill to the brim. Now he has joy over them. Uh, Remember he says in chapter 1, verse 4, always in every prayer of mine making requests for you, with uh, all with joy. And so he had joy over these. But there's a little bit of an issue. A little bit of a, an issue. And that, I think, is this underlying concern about there's a little disunity going on. And so he says, uh, make full my joy by being like-minded. Uh, so really for Paul, uh, unity and joy are going together as far as the fullness of joy that he wants to experience in relationship to them. A little funny story that's not so funny. Maybe it's more true than funny. A father was in his study when he heard commotion outside his window. His daughter was playing with friends, but it kept getting louder and louder, more heated and more argumentative. Stop it, he said. After being reprimanded, she simply responded, but daddy, we're just playing church. (laughs) Sadly, that's more true than funny sometimes. Uh, yeah, a lot of, a lot of church fights. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of disunity sometimes. And so Paul says here, fulfill my joy by being like-minded. Like-minded. Uh, not mindless conformity like a cult has, you know, where you just check your brains at the door and just mindlessly follow. He's not talking about that. He's talking about, though, being on the same page spiritually. And Paul often emphasized this. You know, wherever there's tremendous internal strife, this is his emphasis. Corinth had all kinds of problems. Uh, You know, you might think, well, he'd start with immorality. I mean, the the immorality that was being tolerated then. A man has his stepmother and, and all these things that are going on. No, he starts with this whole issue of unity. Uh, chapter 1, now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, be no divisions, that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind, same judgment. So he's appealing to them for, for unity. And we see that same emphasis here in relationship to the church at Philippi. And uh, the idea here, I think, when we talk about being like-minded, the idea here in context is he wants them all to align with the spirit and the fourfold emphasis that we've already covered in chapter one or verse one, right? 
Uh, so uh, what does the unity look like he's talking about? Again, it's not mindless conformity, but he's talking about if there's any consolation in Christ, any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection of mercy. We want to be like-minded around these wholesome qualities that are found in Jesus Christ. That's the idea that he's emphasizing here. Uh, this is the unity that, that he is desi- desiring. And then he says, uh, having the same love. Um, it's interesting. He emphasizes like-minded, which involves uh, the mind, uh, proper thinking. But now also love. And I think uh, proper thinking and love in, in the Christian family, they, they go together. Uh, and we are called to practice love, Christ-like love, all of us. Uh, we're, we are to uh, practice what really the word here is agape, uh, the, the intensive word for love, God's kind of love, uh, which puts the other person first, which serves others and, and uh, seeks the other person's highest good, gives of itself sacrificially. I mean, this really is to be the identifying mark of God's people, right? We know what Jesus Christ said when he says in, in John 13, a new commandment I give to you. A new commandment. I mean, you already had a commandment to love one another. Uh, love your neighbor, right? Love your neighbor as yourself. Already had, that, already had the commandment, love, love God with all your heart. Uh, but now they've got Christ on the scene. And he says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you. He's the ultimate standard, uh, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. This is the badge of truly being Christ's disciples. We, we have love for one another. What kind of love? Well, Christ-like love for one another. And so that's the emphasis here as well. Uh, fulfill my joy, being like-minded, having the same uh, love, being of one accord, literally one-souled, uh, S-O-U-L-E-D, one-souled, uh, being knit together in soul is the idea, united in spirit, that's the sense here. And so the idea here is uh, don't live for self, rather live selflessly uh, in harmony with the community of believers. That's how he wants them uh, to be living. He wants them to get along well, uh, not allowing petty or inconsequential things to divide and, and cause disunity. Uh, let's see here. I'm trying to figure out my notes here. Okay, I see. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. Uh, finally, he says, uh, of one mind, uh, being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and of, of one mind. Double emphasis on mind here in this, in this verse. Uh, one mind, one love, uh, one accord. Real tremendously strong emphasis here on unity. Unity. And we see again, this is a consistent emphasis uh, from the Apostle Paul, Ephesians 4.3, endeavoring to keep the unity. There is a unity of the Spirit, but we need to keep it now. Uh, Live in harmony with the position that we have in Christ. Uh, Keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. John MacArthur's got a good quote here. He says, because of uh, fracturing Christ's church is one of Satan's major objectives, the challenge is to preserve the unity of the Spirit is constant. A divided, factious, bickering church is spiritually weak. It therefore offers little threat to the devil's work and has little power for advancing the gospel of Christ. Endeavoring to maintain or to restore the spiritual unity of a congregation is easily the most pressing, difficult, and constant challenge for its leaders. Paul's concern here is not about doctrines, ideas, or practices that are clearly unbiblical, 
It's about interpretation, standards, interests, preferences, and the like that are largely matters of personal choice. The church at Philippi was, for the most part, theologically sound, devoted, moral, loving, zealous, courageous, prayerful, generous, yet it faced the danger of discord that often is generated by only a few people. Such troublemakers can stir up the contention and strife that fractures an entire congregation. Boy, that is so true. Uh, I wanted to share this uh, with you. Uh, This was written by uh, Marshall uh, Shelley quite a few years ago, but he he really knew what he was talking about when he uh, put this together. Maybe I don't have it. I don't have it. I must have not given the whole thing. But he's talking about, uh, I'll just tell you what the theme of the, the uh, quote here is. He talks about well-intended dragons. And people in the church, they, they're well-intended, but they just have a, have a way of making moves and handling themselves in a way that causes division. And it's unhealthy. And, but they're well-intended. They think they're really doing the right thing as they're driving this way. And uh, he brings out there, any pastor that's been in the ministry for very long knows about well-intended dragons. Uh, How true that is, uh, we are to really strive together to get along. That's really what he's saying here in verse 2. My way or the highway is not a good way. And now we're not talking about compromise. Obviously, there are certain things you can't compromise. And, you know, it is, you know... We're not going to give on that. But there's a tremendous emphasis here on unity, like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Tremendous emphasis there. I think in the spiritual war that we're involved in, the devil is going about doing everything he can to divide us, constantly, all the time. And a lot of times it happens in subtle ways. that We think, well, that's not that big a deal. Uh, You know, you had a couple of women not getting along at Philippi. It was a big deal. And it, mo- and it moves to, th- to this. And I'm sure they were both well-intended dragons, right? Uh, they were with him, working, helping him in the ministry. I mean, these are, these are quality people. And yet they're having a, a terrible tussle. So anyway, uh, tremendous emphasis on uh, being of one mind. Okay, uh, let's go on here. Any other thoughts? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, that yep. Okay, because, but, so it, it seems that perhaps, based on what you said in the uh, article that you posted on my topic, that there is a place that people can disagree and still maintain a spiritual unity. So we don't have, you know, you, you got a church of 200 people, you got a family, so not everybody's going to think the same way. So, Amen, brother. Oh, that's a, that's a mature statement right there. Amen. We're not all going to think alike. Uh, even us as elders don't think alike on every little thing here, right? So we have to work at, at getting along. And, and there are, are essential, fundamental issues we must agree on. We must agree on the gospel and, and, and different things. But, uh, yeah, we got to get... And I think tone is important to give grace, to give space, to realize... And, you know, the older I get, you know what I realize? I'm not always right. <laughs> I've been married long enough to realize this now. <laughs> so I think there's a, there's a, there needs to be a gracious spirit. I, I think the tone, the tone is so important, you know. 
uh, even, even if uh, we, we disagree. And like I say, there, there are certain things where, as MacArthur also says elsewhere, uh, truth unites, but it also divides. So, you know, there is that, there is that aspect. But given here, like we're talking about Philippi, we're all believers here. Yeah? Oh, yeah, fellowship with, with uh, yeah, we're close. I know what you're talking about. Uh, yeah, I can't quite get it either. But anyway, yeah, Spurgeon had a lot of good quotes. <laughs> All right, very good. Any other thoughts? Okay, let's press on. Let's have somebody read verse uh, 3 here. Who wants to read verse uh, 3 for us? Yeah, John? Okay, very good. Um, my next slide here. Uh, where am I going here? I left out a couple of slides here tonight. But anyway, this is fine. We'll just leave this up. You can leave that up because that's, that's where I'm going. Yeah, it is a good verse. So, but I left out another slide here. Anyway, verse 3. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. Uh, interesting. Uh, you know, it's interesting how he ties this in here. Uh, selfish ambition is the idea of strife. Uh, it's the idea of a party spirit that, that causes factions. Uh, the idea of a, a spirit of rivalry. It's that idea. Uh, it elevates self and puts others down. It's, it's that selfish ambition. Uh, in, in talking about a, a party spirit, it's kind of like what we see with politicians, you know? It's all about me and, and totally destroy the other guy. Uh, that's the idea of, of selfish ambition. Uh, let nothing be done through a political thought. We could almost interpret this, right? In terms of how they carry on pretty consistently, having that party spirit that's, that's factional. And so he's emphasizing... Oh, the whole world is. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that when you get down to it, Believers are about Jesus Christ if we're walking in the Spirit, and the world is all about self. That's true. Amen. Amen, Derek. That's for sure. No doubt about it. Uh, so this, these, uh, this emphasis here on selfish ambition is really what defined Paul's uh, critics in one sense. And that's what we're looking at here as far as Philippians 1.16. He's talking about his critics on the scene there. The former preached Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely supposing to add affliction to my chains. By the way, he did not approve. He was praising the Lord wherever the gospel was really getting out. He was praising the Lord for that. But he did not approve of their selfish ambition. Some people say, well, it's no big deal. Yes, it was. He comes back to this right here. Uh, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition. This is having a self-agenda where it's all about me being number one. By the way, this is a work of the flesh, as we find in Galatians 5.20. Again, uh, MacArthur says... This, it is not surprising that rejecting selfishness is listed first, since it is the root of every other sin. It was by placing his will above God's that Satan fell. And it was by placing their own wills above God's that Adam and Eve first brought sin into the world. Self-will has been at the heart of every subsequent sin. Well, that's a pretty strong statement. No wonder he says, uh, let nothing be done through selfish ambition. It really is a very destructive thing. Or conceit. 
Uh, conceit is sinful pride. Let, literally, em- empty glory. Empty glory. Uh, this is an exaggerated view of self. It puts self up, puts others down. You see that selfish ambition puts others down. Uh, conceit puts self up. That's what we have here. Uh, I sometimes, yes. Yeah, yeah. For sure, for sure. Uh, Diotrephes uh, was in that position. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's one of the dangers of, a, of a putting a novice in the position of an elder, right? I mean, he gets a big head like, like the devil, falls from his position of honor. Yeah, uh, absolutely. <laughs> in, anybody's vulnerable, you know. Let him think if he stand and take heed lest he fall. In fact, you know, it sneaks up on you. Uh, the other day, I, I should not tell on myself like this, but it's probably good for me. But we met an old friend, and she had long time ago visited the other church. And I said, you know, well, we're in, we're in a, another church now, and, and it's a larger church. And I was kind of carrying on, and we walked away, and Janie said, that sounded kind of proud. <laughs> and, and I thought to myself, and I thought, you know, I didn't, I, didn't think, I, I didn't think about it that way, but I think maybe it was kind of creeping through. <laughs> it happens, Right. We're, we're all, you know, we're all vulnerable to pride. I, I'm first one to admit, yeah, that could sneak in there. I, well, that's for sure. You know, Paul says, God forbid that I should glory, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, yeah, we do glory in the Lord. And, uh, we, but sometimes I think in, in, I'm wanting to give all the glory to God for where we are here for sure. And I say that all the time. But I think my heart can kind of creep in there, you know, a little bit. I think it was happening right there. I think my wife... Called a spade a spade there. And I even thanked her for... Uh, yeah? Well, amen to that. I'm, I'm pretty sure that's true. I'm, I'm just saying I'm not above it. That's for sure. All right. Uh, yeah, conceit. Conceit. And an, an exaggerated view of self. Um, you know, I call these people, uh, including myself when it happens here, hot air, hot air balloon people. Uh, you know, because it's kind of like uh, the the bigger your head gets, the more empty it is. <laughs> yeah, you're right. Empty glory, literally. Empty glory. So, yeah, that's, that's the idea. Uh, God doesn't want us to be proud. Uh, we are not to be people of selfish ambition or conceit. And the reason I think this is being emphasized by Paul here is that these traits are church killers, I think they're church killers. Uh, and it's the essential cause of disunity in contrast to humility and lowliness of mind, as he goes on to talk about uh, in the remainder of the verse here. All right. Any other thoughts? Once in a while I pause. Okay, let's go on. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. You see, that's in contrast to the, the selfish ambition and the conceit. In contrast to that, but is a contrast word, in lowliness of mind. Uh, Lowliness of mind is the idea of humility, uh, where I'm not just putting myself up above everyone else. Uh, I value others. I see their importance. 
And uh, this idea of lowliness of mind, this idea of humility, was really despised by the, by the Greeks. This was not a virtuous thing in their mind. I mean, slaves had this type of attitude as they, as they groveled before the master uh, to, and were down in that lowly position. Paul actually kind of coins a word here. We don't find it anywhere else. Uh, I think I got a slide on this. It is thought that Paul coined the Greek word translated lowliness of mind because it never appears before we find it in the New Testament. Uh, What was considered a concept of degradation by the Greeks, Paul takes and applies as a Christian virtue. Paul stands the wisdom of the world on its head. Of course, the whole counsel of God speaks to the virtue and wisdom of humility. Being lowly-minded is not a derogatory put-down of self or merely saying that others have more value. Uh, That is a form of false flattery. Rather, being lowly-minded is having an attitude that values others and regards them as a higher priority than yourself. Um, That is not so easy to do, Uh, lowliness of mind. Uh, But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. So we see, it's like I'm lowering myself. I'm not thinking myself better. In fact, I'm going to put you ahead of me. That's real humility in shoe leather. Uh, to esteem means to regard, uh, to, re- to regard, to give careful thought to. Uh, this is the idea of true humility, which is other-centered. Uh, let each esteem others better than himself. Again, this is putting others ahead of self, uh, which is so easy to preach. It's not so easy to do, certainly on a consistent, uh, in a consistent way. Uh, to think others are more important than me in terms of my priorities. It's not about, it's not about me, it's about others. Uh, certainly, that's the emphasis here. Uh, chapter 1, Christ is emphasized as first. Uh, chapter 2, others second. Well, where is self in this? Uh, <laughs> how about last? How about last? Uh, and we need to humble ourselves. I often say the way, the way up is first the way down. Uh, you know, we, we see this emphasis repeatedly by Paul and Peter. But in Romans twelve sixteen, be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. You, you know, I, I kind of think that's a, that's a great perspective on humility. If I'm willing to associate with the humble, you know, I just want to walk around with the, you know, the people that are kind of uppity. Makes me feel uppity. We're all uppity. <laughs> no! Associate with the humble. Don't think you're above them. Do not be wise in your own opinion. And then Peter says, be clothed with humility. What's the idea of being clothed? It's what you're dressed in, right? It's, it's, it's what clothes your whole life. It's what it's, it defines you. Be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. That's why I say the, the way up is first the way down. Humble yourselves that he may exalt you in due time. He gives grace to the humble. God, God honors this. Yeah. May I ask you a question? It's kind of uh, statement kind of question. Sure. Yep. Well, that's. Properly defined. Properly defined, like 
I think so. And I think what you're saying well, is right where we go to verse 4. Because he goes on to say, let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but... So, so there is a place where, yeah, you do kind of, you know, there is a place for looking after your own interest uh, in, a, in a proper healthy sense. But, you know, you really want to uh, not be really living for self. Yeah. And, and not, uh, I don't think self is the ultimate end of all, you know, as far as the ultimate priority here. Yeah, well, God is, and then when God is, others are. You know, he's just said, uh, think of others before yourself. So, yeah, that's good. Okay, anyone else? Okay, let's uh, go ahead and have somebody read verse 4. Who wants to read that for us? Yes, Dale? Okay, so again, there is a, there is a balance here. Uh, he doesn't say, you know, uh, don't be concerned about anything that relates to self here. No, the balance is let each of you look out not only for his own interest. It's a given that you're going to be uh, concerned about your own interest, right? I often say when I get up in the morning, the first thing I, I think about doing is, is brushing my own teeth. I seldom brush my wife's teeth, you know. I say, well, her teeth need to be brushed too, so I'm going to look after her knees before mine. No, 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 no. It's a given you're going to be looking after your own interests here. Uh, of course, and, that, and that's appropriate uh, in, in a sense. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests. It's a given you, you will be doing that, but then also for the interests of others. Be, be other-centered, uh, which is characteristic of, of true humility versus selfishness, which is all about self and a self-agenda. So uh, this is a good quote from uh, Charles D. Miggs. Uh, others, Lord, yes, others, let this my motto be. Help me to live for others that I might live like thee. How true that is. True story, General William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army, established his ministry to reach out to the poor and downcast of London. But his ministry eventually spread around the world. Towards the end of his life, his organization had an international convention. General Booth was to give the keynote address, but because he became ill, he was unable to come. Those at the convention longed to receive a message from their beloved leader. So from his sick, sick bed, Booth dictated a one-word telegram, which would be his very last message. His final message was, others. <laughs> Not a bad one, right? Not a bad emphasis. Uh, others. Be, be other-oriented here. Uh, someone has said, the opposite of love is not hate but self. Uh, conduct worthy of the gospel is a lot about biblical unity. Being a team player, biblical unity. And unity is a lot about humility. Humility. And that sets the stage for the ultimate example of humility in the history of the world, which was Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ. This leads in to